0: it's Wednesday Bible study, but uh, I'm going to try to teach and not preach. I think that's a possibility for me. So don't say amen because I might start, it just might turn to a Sunday morning service. I'm, I'm trying to be a little more dignified here uh, than normal. Praise God. The cross. Well, we're just going to dive right into it. The cross. I've um, been praying about this theme and, and kind of what to do on Wednesday nights. And, and this is just what the Lord began to speak to my heart, and the Lord just kept speaking to me, John chapter 12, verse 32, and he just kept saying, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself, and and when we hear that outside of context, we, we sometimes think that's a, if we lift God up with our praise, or if we, you know, kind of raise the roof, I guess, uh, you know, this kind of pumped up praise that that will draw men unto God. And, and while that is true on, on, on a lot of levels, what Jesus is saying, if we read the very next verse in verse 33, he said this signifying what death he would die. So when Jesus was talking to the people and saying, this is what's going to draw all men unto me, he was saying, if I be lifted up and be put on a cross... So the people suddenly didn't burst out into a praise. They probably started scratching their heads and wondered, what kind of a God is this? What kind of a king is this that would do this? What, what kind of a God lumps himself into the category with murderers And robbers and thieves. And mind you, if you're a Roman citizen, even if you did those things, you wouldn't be crucified. You had to be a foreigner or a slave. So they're seeing Jesus do these miraculous things, but then Jesus is saying, don't get it twisted here. But what's going to draw all men unto myself is when I'm lifted up on a cross. So that changes everything about our perception of God and who God is as He reveals Himself in Scripture. So what God is saying in essence is, I can take the most evil, horrifying implement of torture in human history, I can subject myself to it, I can take that moment and that suffering and I can redeem it and turn it into something good. Come on now, I got a amen at a Baptist church right there. Come on now. That God would dive into the most horrifying death instrument ever invented and say, I can make this good. And God makes it so good that we wear it around our necklace and around our neck like jewelry. Think about how good God can make something so bad. Think if I had a golden chain with an electric chair on it, right? You'd be like, like, you're in a rap video or something wrong with you? What's going on? But Jesus... Can take something so horrible and make it so good. So God's saying there's no mess that the human imagination and that Satan himself could invent that I can't dive into and redeem and make good. Wow. What a God that we serve. So what's the history of the symbol? How did this become the symbol of Christianity? well it kind of has a a storied picture if you were to think about what would describe Christianity or what symbol would you use if you could use any it would definitely be the cross and every symbol has theirs the Buddhists have a lotus flower and uh, the uh, Islam has the crescent uh, moon kind of shape Uh, communism has the hammer and the sickle these symbols are what what a certain belief group or a country or or anything want to be known by. And so how did the cross emerge as the uh, thing that would define Christianity and the thing that would be the symbol for for the Christian faith? Well, the cross was not the first symbol of Christianity. Due to the persecution of the first Christians, they couldn't be flamboyant about their religion like we can now, right? They didn't have TBN back then because... It's persecution, you got it right, and so they couldn't be so flamboyant. So they had to uh, kind of push underground. But how many of you know when you get pushed underground, there's still in an art- artistic expression that comes out of your soul, and so that's what happened. And so these Christians that were persecuted, when they found these old catacombs where Christians would hide, they're basically a place where Christians would be buried. Uh, or, or the dead would be buried. and so the Christians were having to hide there for safety. They begin to find paintings. If you're not going to believe it, the first symbol, expression of Christianity, you won't believe it. Are you ready for this? A peacock it was a symbol of immortality in that time. And so they begin to express themselves. So that makes that tattoo make sense now, Dwayne that you got. I didn't know you were so studied. Now, okay, that makes sense. Oh, man, pray for me. Okay. So they couldn't flaunt the religion, so the cross was avoided for obvious reasons because if they saw a picture of a cross, that would automatically mean Christianity. So they used things like uh, the palm, the victory palm, uh, for athletes that, that win, win the prize are various things like, like that. So now later in the second century, something else began to emerge. Still persecuted, still pushed underground, but it began to take a more Old Testament where it could be maybe Judaism or Christianity. So like pictures of the Noah Noah's Ark, Daniel's in the lions den. These these were the kind of the uh, the artistic expressions. But then in the somewhat later in the second century. The cross begin to emerge, and they begin to find this uh, engraved on on caskets, on tombs, and painted on different things. And so, then the cross really started to emerge as that as the enduring symbol of Christianity. And if you think about it, if you're persecuted, what are you going to identify more with? Right? You're going to want to know that. If I have to go to that cross, I'm going to follow a God that tells me on the other side there's victory available for me. So these Christians said, we're going to pick the cross as our symbol because if that's the worst men and Satan can do and God can beat that, well, then we'll push that in their face and say, what you meant for evil, Satan, God can still take and make something good out of it. So it's pretty pretty neat uh, what happened there. And so it could have been any symbol. They could have picked a manger, a carpenter's bench, a boat, an apron, a basin, an empty tomb, a throne. A lot of different things. But they saw the cross as the central identifier to the Christian message. The cross was also, according to John Stott, was a cosmic symbol. as You have the vertical beam connecting... To God, indicating our relationship with God. The horizontal beam, indicating a relationship to each other and how that plays out in reality. So there was several, uh, several meanings that, that were, that were uh, tied to the cross to commemorate that as a, being the central understanding of Jesus and, and what he was all about. Now in the 4th century, it became the enduring symbol of an entire empire. The emperor Constantine in three in 312 was at the battle, what's called the Milvian Bridge. And in this battle, he was facing this other Roman emperor. It was a tetrarchy at this time, and several people with power were trying to be the emperors. And so Constantine was wanting to unify the Roman Empire again. And so uh, legend has it, folklore, history, I'm not sure what, that he saw a vision in the clouds, and it was a cross-shaped light that shined through the clouds, and he read these words, in hoc signo vincis, in the Latin, which is, in this sign, conquer. And so Constantine took that as a sign from God and puts the cross on the shields and on the different battle, uh, the battle implements in the war, and then he wins the war, and then Christianity suddenly is not underground, but gets pushed above ground at this point and later becomes the, natural, the uh, national religion of Rome. Now, what, Constantine wasn't a, a great saint. He had a lot of problems and there's a lot of debate whether he was actually saved in that moment. But the persecution anyhow released. There was pros to that. There was cons to that. But that's how the cross kind of became the enduring symbol of Christianity just to give you a little background in that. Now, the nature of the cross. The choice of this symbol is surprising. How many of you know anything about marketing, right? Me and my wife are messing around with Photoshop. We're trying to figure stuff out, pictures, how to make things look good, whatever. When you're marketing something, you want to have something pleasing to the eye, right? Something that evokes emotions that are happy, good, peaceful, whatever. But the Christians choose the cross, And they choose the cross close enough to the time where they were crucifying people that people would have known what the cross is. So it's an odd choice, and it kind of makes sense of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul says this, that the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing, but to those of us that are being saved, it's the power of God. So it seems to me that the cross would be the defining indicator whether you're a Christian or not. Does it seem foolish or does it seem like the power of God? Almost like God would, they would pick a symbol that unless the supernatural power of God came in, you wouldn't choose it. It's almost like they made it hard to become a Christian. Or maybe not hard, just honest. We could use a dose of that in this day and age, right? Some honesty. So it goes on to say in verse 23, the Greeks thought it was foolish. I believe, and then the Jews a stumbling block. Is that what it says? Stumbling block? So they picked a symbol that would make the Jews stumble and make the Greeks scratch their hands and say, that's so unwise. Because Hercules and all our demigods win great wars and do great things. But your God comes down and does everything right and then suffers for it. It's almost as if God is saying, I'm going to be so counter to what the world calls wisdom, and I'm going to shame the wise with something so foolish and make it so powerful and so great to just brag on how awesome and how glorious I actually am. It's almost as if God is showing out by choosing the cross. Now, this method of crucifixion was invented by barbarians on the edge of the known world. But the Greeks and the Romans took it, and then they perfected it to make it even more cruel. It's the most cruel method of death ever invented. It was invented to make death delay to the point to where you could wish, you could only wish that you would die. Most of our suffering were wishing to live. This kind of suffering put us put people in positions to where they wish they could die. And this is what Christ endured. This was reserved for murderers and political rebels or armed robbers, provided they were slaves or foreigners. The siege of Jerusalem, General Titus in 70 AD, tired of the Jewish revolts, comes in to crush the city as Christ prophesied. And as he comes in, uh, historians say that as he came in and destroyed the city and the temple and everything, it said that there were so many crucified that there was neither space to crucify anyone else nor crosses for the bodies that were left. There were so many crucified, there wasn't enough trees to continue the practice. Cicero, a Roman statesman and historian, says this to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him, there is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. And Jews made no distinction between a tree or a cross. So, Deuteronomy 21, 23 curses the one who hangs on a tree. They couldn't reconcile this in their mind that God would be a curse, that the Messiah would die under such a curse. So, whether Roman or Jewish, the idea of God dying was insane. But this became a symbol of we all love and cherish today the fact that Christians refuse to disregard the symbol for something more palatable indicates that it was not Christian the Christians idea to make this the symbol but that this was in the heart of God before the foundations of the earth that if they could have picked something else they would have but the cross was so central that it was tied to the very nature of God himself. The origins of the cross were in the heart of God. Now, I handed out some scriptures earlier, and we're going to read some scriptures on this. Who's got Mark chapter 8, verse 29 through 32? Dwayne? It says, and he's said it to them, but when you say that I am... I am. And Peter answered and said unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, so and be rejected of the elders, and of the chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spake unto them, saying openly, and Peter took him, and began to rebuke him. This was in the, the heart of God. Who's got Mark chapter 9, verse 30? Right there, Go ahead, Rod. 30 through 32, I believe. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching the disciples. And he said to them, The Son of Man it's is true. going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what they what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Um, who's got Matthew 17, 22 through 23? Yeah. Who's Luke chapter 18, verse 31, 34? Who's got that one? Listen, we're going up to Jerusalem, where all the predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. He will be handed over to the Romans, and he will be mocked, treated shamefully, and spit upon him. They will flog him with a whip and kill him, but on the third day he will rise again. But they didn't understand any of this. The significance of his words was hidden from them. They to grasp what he was talking about. Hmm. Who's got Luke 22, verse 37? That's you, Dad. <clears throat> for I say unto you, that this is written, must yet be accomplished in me, and he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. So we see here through the All throughout the Gospels, and I could have grabbed a hundred more scriptures on this, that everything within the Gospels was centering on Christ, and Christ was clear about his message of where he was going, that the cross was this place to where Christ was headed towards. And this all correlates in the Old Testament with Isaiah 53, the, the great passage that we We kind of remember from that Isaiah 53, 5, that he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was placed upon him, yet by his stripes we're healed. And so that's 700 years before Christ. It's even on the earth. So we could keep going back and back and back. Now John's gospel doesn't use uh, the cross when he's referring to this. He talks in a different way. In John's gospel, he uses the Greek word hora, which translates hour. But hour can mean many different things. It can refer to a time, a period of time, a a fixed time that is fixed by natural law, just like a season in which has a set time and then passes and revolves around and comes back again. So when John is talking of the cross, he talks of it as a time fixed by natural law. That God wasn't reactionary when it came to the cross, but that it was in the heart of God before he said, let there be light. Now, with the mind of God, (laughs) scope and breadth of his wisdom, that his hour, his fixed time to where he would show the world who he was and how he wanted to be glorified would be the worst suffering so that the world would know there's no God like our God. And there's no one that loves like our God. And there's no God willing to do what our God will do. That God lets men in his, their imagination invent the most cruel method before he decides to come. If I was going to come and die for the sins of the world, I would say, let's wait until they've got lethal injection. <laughs> right? Don't me up and put a needle in my arm and the sins of the world are paid for, right? But Jesus says, no, I want to go into the most brutal empire in human history, the most oppressive empire in, bru- in human history. I want to come as a 30-year-old construction worker. I'm going to have the... I'm going to be in the womb of an unwed teenager. I'm going to come in a way that nobody would expect to show that nobody's like me. And no matter how much the deck is stacked against me, I'm coming out on the other side by the glory of the Father, and I'm going to rise from the dead. And when somebody reads Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, they have to read that differently now. Because Matthew chapter 4 verse 16 says, A light has shone on those who are in the valley of the shadow of death. So there's no more shadow of death. We know where we're going. (laughs) Because one's gone before us and showed us our destiny. It's amazing. So, my hour has come. John chapter 12, verse 20 through 28. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So, these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant be also. <laughs> if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Wow. Word of God. I don't even want to add to that. For Pete's sake. Wow. Jesus said, this is how I'm going to be glorified. This is how the Father gets glory. Glory. That that Jesus didn't just come to change God's mind about us. Jesus came to change our minds about God. Tweet that out, somebody. So Jesus' hour, his day, his appointed time, he's creating salvation. John chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus said there's a time coming, a dark time, to where no man can work. But in the fifth verse, he says, I'm the light of the world. So, potentially, now this is speculation. Dwayne, don't confront me afterwards, okay? Theologically, okay? I'm just, this is just dreaming, guessing, maybe. Maybe. I don't know, that on the sixth day of the week, the sixth hour of the day, potentially the sixth day of creation, when Jesus cries, it is finished, that day where no man can work had come, and we entered into the seventh day of God's rest where we went from our works to put our faith in the works of God and rested in his work. Where now Jesus becomes our Sabbath. So as God created in the six days in creation, Jesus finished the work of creating salvation. So 666, the Antichrist is defeated on the sixth day of the week in the sixth hour of the day on the sixth day of creation and then we enter into seven completeness and fullness in God maybe I might be stretching it there but this is just how my mind works this was Jesus choice for you John chapter 10 verse 17 and 18 this wasn't something that you know he had to do god doesn't have to do anything he's god verse 17 for this reason chapter 10 verse 17 for this reason the father loves me because i lay down my life that i may take it up again no one takes it from me but i lay it down of my own accord have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. But there was never a moment where Jesus wasn't in control. Even when he's being crucified. And I submit to you, there's never a moment where Jesus isn't in control of your life, of your mess and your mistakes. But he can lay it down and he can take it up. And guess what? When you lay down, he can take you back up. I'm going to close with this Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons Whew. Lance didn't even know you were going to be here and because you are sons <laughs> God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying Abba father this is daddy this is familial language dad dad Not God the Father, but Dad. Dad. (laughs) So you are no longer a slave, but a son. (laughs) And if a son, then an heir through God. I guess when it all comes down to it, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, is enough despite all the other stuff that we can add to it. Would you stand to your feet with me? And let's just take a moment, just lift our hands, and just thank God for the cross.